already said goodbye and we thanked Danny for being our interim worship director, but today is his last day. So do not leave church today until you've gone to Danny and thank him. He's going to kill me for doing that, but it's important and we do want to thank him. So Danny, thank you for all your service here at Church of the Canyons. We're going to miss you in Idaho. Don't get me started. <laughs> but it's a good morning to be together yet again uh, to, to continue our study of the church. All right, last week we started our sermon series on the church with Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, where Jesus declares that I will build my church. And it's upon that foundation of, the, of confessing that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, that the church is built. And so we labor and, and we have confidence in that confessional statement, understanding that Jesus owns and builds his church. And this morning we're going to see then how we, as members of the church, are to act. Right? What is the characteristic that should be front and center of the church that Jesus Christ himself is building? So turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 12, I'll read it, and you can follow along this morning. Starting in verse 12. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, chosen, uh, yeah, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Verse 14, what we'll, we'll focus in on this morning. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Today, the title for this sermon is Unifying Love, and it's clear from the text why I chose that title, right? It's love. Love is the perfect bond of unity, and we're going to be taking some time to unfold that, see what it means for us in our own lives this morning. You know, this, this, uh, this past week, the, the internet never lets me down. You know, I googled, I googled craziest church splits. And a list of 25 reasons of why churches split came up. And it's, it's, it was incredible. I'll only highlight just a few. A church just started disputing because the communion that they served, uh, one group wanted cran grape juice and the other one wanted pure grape juice. And so they started fighting about it. Another church had a, had a fight over which picture of Jesus to hang in their foyer. Silly. In a different church, they were disputing over whether or not the worship leader had to wear shoes on stage or not. Side note, thank you, Adam, for wearing shoes this morning. And my personal favorite, a fight over whether the church should call their uh, lunch a potluck or a pot blessing. Silly. It's comical. But it's amazing to hear about church fights and church splits and maybe some of you have been a part of a church that has split in the past. There, and there are some good reasons why churches are to part ways. But most likely, most likely, if they were just willing to apply biblical principles to whatever the issue was, it could have been healed. It could have been avoided. It could have been dissipated. And they could have stayed together. Unless there's a matter of doctrinal heresy, in most cases, if those churches had just shown love toward one another, then they could have maintained their unity in the spirit and in that local body. And again, I say those, those examples are silly, but it's true, right? Churches have split over music styles, music preferences, philosophy of ministry, over children's ministry, over how the funds of the church are used, and these things happen, they, they happen regularly and more regularly than you think they would happen. And so we have, we have to ask ourselves, we must ask ourselves, do you think love could have handled those situations? Do you think that love could have deferred to someone else? Do you think love could have said, we need to treat each other better? 
Listen, disputes, they happen in the church. And it happened in the first century church. And that's why Paul writes here, and he's telling the church at Colossae, right? He's saying, make sure that you are people who, apart from all these other virtues that I said, and that I told you about, that you're loving one another. Because if there's no love, then all these other virtues have no result. And this morning, I want us to consider two truths from our passage in Colossians 3, 14. Two truths that will help us apply these, these virtues of faith in order to develop and maintain unity within the local body. All right, you'll see them in your notes. Number one is the walk in the supreme power of love. And you'll see that in the first part of the verse. And then number two, we'll see later on, walk in the secure power of love. Supreme and secure. As a church, we must be walking in the supreme and the secure power of love. Number one, first let's consider the supreme power of love. Start in verse 14. It says, beyond all these things. Can't get too much further before we have to determine what is that? What does it mean? Beyond all these things. It's a short prepositional phrase that needs clarity. So what is Paul communicating here? So we can look at it this way. He could simply be saying, in addition to all these things, on, or, or on the other hand, he could, be, he could be saying, on top of, or above all, or exceeding everything else, put on love. And I looked at a bunch of, of different translations of this passage this week, and you'll find that word translated above all, beyond all, over all, add to these things, or upon all these things. So what is Paul really communicating? He's communicating something about love, right? And it comes down after a bunch, a big list of all these other virtues. So look at the virtues again in verses 12, 12 and 13. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, forgiving one another, right? That's the list of virtues that he's saying. And so in, in verse 14, he's either saying, add to all those virtues, love, or he's saying, beyond these things, above all these things, on top of all these things, make sure that you put on love. And I believe that it's the latter that, uh, that, f- that fits and what, what he's trying to communicate. Above all these things, put on love. Beyond all these other virtues, put on love. On top of all these other things that I'm talking about, put on love. See, love is supreme in its nature because without love, these other expressions, these other virtues will really not have their full force. And as a matter of fact, if there is no love, it is impossible for you to manifest compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. You cannot do it. And even if you thought you were doing those things without love, for instance, if you thought you were being patient, but you were not loving, you were probably just ignoring your brother, right? And, and calling it patience. See, pride would be masked just as being kind. Right? Forgiveness would just be a cryptic self-accounting of sin of other people. So the question for us this morning is why? Why must we put on love? Why must we put on love? I'll give you four reasons. These are A, B, C, and D in your notes. First, it is the obedient response to the character of God when we put on love. Get your fingers nimble because we're going to be going to a lot of different passages this morning. But it's, a, it's the obedient, we must walk in love because it's the obedient response to the character of God. The point of this passage, and really of our lives overall, is that we are to look to Christ and follow his example in every facet of our, of our life. And you see that in Colossians chapter 3 verse 1, right? Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We're supposed to look above. We're supposed to look uh, uh, to Christ. Not the things on the earth. We're to look above. And that's where Christ is. See, he sets the pattern for us. And so here, Paul says that we must put on love, which is obviously the language that's, you, that's found. If you go to verse 10, right? Look at verse 10. 
And having put on this new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Right? Put on this new self. And a part of this new self is love. So he distinguishes it. He sets it apart. And so make sure that love is emphasized because in fact it's a reflection of God's own character. And we understand this, right? You see in other, other passages like 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Ephesians chapter 3. And you can turn there if you want. But Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17 through 19, he says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And we know it too, John 3.16. You probably knew that verse before you even were a Christian, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his son. So we must put on love because it's the obedient response to God's character. Let her be in your notes. Second reason why we must put on love is that it's the worshipful response to the teaching of Christ. It's the worshipful response to Christ's teaching. It goes beyond just a simple motivation that we should put on love. It's a sincere, worshipful response based on your desire to worship the one who has saved you. And so Jesus teaches and that, should, that, that requires a response from us. It, you cannot go unfazed or unaffected when Jesus speaks. When he teaches, it has to change your life. And so the worshipful response then might be, you know, God, I have this great sense of gratitude towards you. And my worshipful response to you is that I want to emulate this behavior in my life through the body of the local church. Right? What did Christ say in John 13? Turn with me there. John 13. Christ is very direct in his teaching about love. At this point in the gospel, John uh, points out that Jesus has demonstrated through his humility this love. Right? We had just got done seeing that Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. And then we see in verse 33... Look at it with me. Little children, I'm with you for a little while longer. You will seek me. And I said to the Jews now, I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Uh, Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Those verses, those words, it's a big deal, right? Think about it for a moment. We have to take pause. Whenever, Whenever Jesus says that you're to act like the way God acts towards you, that should give you pause. You have to think about that. If he's saying, I'm asking you to respond in a way that I have acted towards you, it's humbling. And you see that even in in our passage, right? Colossians 3.13, we are to forgive others, how? The way that God has forgiven you. And so John 13.34, love as you have been loved. Now stop for a moment and ask yourself, in what ways has God loved me? And if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, then you have some testimony, some sort of way that you can identify and and speak of the great love that Christ has shown you, right? Through salvation. And so you've got to ask yourself the question, do I love my brother in the same way that Christ has loved me? Paul said it a different way. He says, love your wife just as Christ loved the church, right? Everyone ought to be humbled by that. Love one another the way that I've loved you. And that's hard. It's hard. But nonetheless, we are called to it. And this then is the worshipful response that says, I know Jesus' teaching. I know what Jesus said. And I will look to manifest that love, those commandments, in the body of the local church. There's a third reason why we must walk in love. It's the proper response to Paul's exhortation to walk in love. Walking in love is a proper response to uh, Paul's teaching. 
You remember 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's a familiar passage. It's a passage on love. Paul communicates there at the same point, but he does it in a different way. And he highlights the supreme nature of love. His, his point in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is the same point he writes about in Colossians chapter 3. At this sense that any other virtue apart from love is not truly virtuous. Right? You cannot separate the two. And now, as you read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, there's a tone in which Paul writes. Right? He's, uh, he's addressing the, the issues in the Corinthian church. Right? The church, the, those members were fighting and they were coveting each other's gifts and holding gifts in higher importance than others. And so he said to them, if you expressed every single gift, every one of the spiritual gifts, but you didn't have love, what are you? You're like a clanging cymbal. A noisy gong, useless. No one wants to hear that going over and over again. And so there's a certain tone that comes with Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 13. And we recognize that. But nonetheless, if the, if the tone even weren't that way, if he was talking about genuine prophets, genuine uh, uh, work, workers of miracles, right? But if you didn't have love, then those gifts mean nothing. If you don't have love, those gifts mean nothing. And it's true in the Corinthian church uh, because in the way that which they were using their giftedness at times and they were boasting in their giftedness, it was a manifestation that they didn't have love for one another. Look at me. Look, look with me at Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. Paul's teaching again on the superior nature of love. And so you look at the opening statement in verse 8. He says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. And then in verse 9 and 10, he says the commandment is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is what? The fulfillment of the law. And of course, right, this is consistent with what Christ taught in the Gospels, right? And even what we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, and also when Christ, if you remember, when Christ was questioned, he says, uh, what is the greatest commandment? Do you remember what Jesus says? He says, to love God with all your heart. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So we see the supreme nature of love. It's bound to the character of God. It's in the teaching of Christ. And it's obviously in the teaching of Paul. And I'll show you one more spot where Paul writes about this in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. We're going to see one more example from Paul's teaching of why we need to be walking in love. Look at verse 6, chapter 5, verse 6. It says this, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. So what's Paul's, what, what is he saying here? What's the statement? Paul is saying a person can have Jewish background or he can have a Gentile background, but it really it has no bearing for God showing favor towards you. What ultimately, ultimately matters is that you demonstrate faith. And what's the relationship there? Faith connected to what? Love. Love. There's a connection there. Faith working through love. Faith manifests itself in love. And you might, uh, might be thinking and, and call, recalling to mind what James says, right? If someone says that they have faith, show me your faith. By what? Your works. So if, we have, so if we say that we have faith, but then we have no love, then we really can't have faith, right? You don't have faith because it always manifests itself into, in love. Because love is the supreme virtue. And you must love your neighbor as yourself and love one another as Christ has loved you. And you notice in Galatians 5, you drop down to verse 14, it's, it's similar to what Paul was writing about in Romans. Look at verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Are we getting the point here this morning? Are we loving one another? Are we loving those who might be difficult to love? 
so also to drop down uh, in, in, same, in the same passage, Galatians 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Obviously, that, that list is in contrast with the deeds of the flesh. And so we put on love because of God's character. We put on love because of Christ's teaching. We put on love because of Paul's exhortation. There's one more reason that I'd like to show you this morning of why we need to be walking in love. And it's a strategic response to Peter's instruction for the church. Turn with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. I don't hear any pages rustling. You guys on your phone? Oh, man. That breaks my heart a little bit. That's okay. Letter D in, in your notes is why we must be walking in love. It's, it's a strategic response to Peter's instruction for handling offenses. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So Peter, he's writing to the churches in Asia Minor and they, he's commending them. He's saying, you have love for one that you have not seen because of the love that God has shed in your own heart. And now, because of that love, you have faith in him. Drop down to verse 22, same chapter. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren fervently love one another from the heart. Now it's interesting here, this connection. He says, purify your souls for sincere love of the brethren. And so why is it necessary for the purification of the soul? I think another, it's just another way uh, of echoing what Paul says elsewhere in, in Colossians, and we'll tur- turn back to Colossians 3 in just a second. But we need to put off the things of the past so that you can love and put on the new self and love in the present and into the future. That is the purification of the soul. So you cannot love someone if you're still entrenched in anger and malice and deceit and lying. Right? You cannot do it. So there must be this purification of the soul. Peter is simply saying that we have purified ourselves in the sense that we have come to faith. And now we manifest that faith through loving the brethren. And he, and he says, you must do that. You must love the brethren fervently. Fervently. Because that same word, it'll come up in chapter 4 of 1 Peter. But notice here, chapter 2 verse 17 in 1 Peter. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. Another way of simply saying what we've already read and what we've already communicated, have love for one another. But pay attention, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. This is such a necessary verse because you notice the relationship to what we've already looked at in Colossians chapter 3. Bearing with one another, forgiving one another. How? Just as Christ forgave you. And now we see the relationship, that love and forgiveness. You see the connection between love and forgiveness and how closely they're tied together. And if you notice the language, right? Above all. Where have we heard that type of language before? Back in Colossians, we hear that above all. Paul says, beyond all, put on love. And Peter says here, above all, put on love, right? If you look at chapter 4, verse 8 again, he says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Because love indeed does cover a multitude of sins. Chapter 4, Peter writes, he begins with this statement on sin, right? How can we be prepared to address sin? Follow with me on verse 1 through 3 of uh, chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. 
so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. So Peter's, Peter's language is this the same as Paul's in the sense that, hey, your sin, that's in the past. It's in the past. Now put that sinful life away. Now purity is your life. Purity is in your present life. It's in your future. And the wording is so direct here, right? In verse three, the time that has already passed, hey, that's sufficient. That's good enough. You don't want it anymore. And it's really practical, right? For our own lives. He said, you've had your chance to be in the world and it's sufficient. As a matter of fact, he, he, he would say it was more than enough time in the world. Right? Your past life is done now that you're in Christ. You know, maybe some of you have regrets from the past, right? Wishing that, that things would ne- have never have happened in your life. You know, wishing that you didn't have memories. And by God's grace, God can, God can take away those memories from your mind. And we have to try hard not to conjure up those images again. And there's some memories that I wish that I would just as soon never, ever remember again. Some of you are like that. And others of you are, are on the other hand, by the grace of God, you don't have that in your life. They're not in your database. And praise God for that. You're fortunate. But we can look at 1 Peter chapter 4 and say, you're right. That time before Christ, it was sufficient. It's in the past. The time with the world, I've had enough. And now, now I live for Christ. So how am I to live? How am I to love? How am I to forgive? How am I to bear with one another and to be compassionate towards others and to be gentle with others? He says you do that by loving one another. You love one another. So obviously he words it different here, Peter does, uh, to have it be your lifestyle, a lifestyle of loving one another. But notice what he says. He says, earnestly do it. Did you catch it? Earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sin. And what's interesting is that word earnestly, it's a very strong word. uh, Previously he said fervently. And so why does he say that? Earnest love or fervent love. You know, you've already said, Peter, you know, you, you, you told us already and you need to have it to keep going in your life. So why add this fervency or being earnest about loving one another? Well, obviously, Peter's trying to emphasize something, right? He's, he's making a point because, as we've seen earlier, love is what? The supreme virtue. Love is the supreme virtue. That if we don't display love in the church... The church is truly not the church. Right? This word translated earnestly, it's used uh, at times to describe a horse at full gallop. All right, imagine watching the, the Kentucky Derby race after race. You see these horses just at full gallop all the way around the track. And you see the jockey riding that horse with the whip for motiv- motivation. And these majestic beasts are are sprinting around the track and snorting and spitting and stomping and striving to win that race. That's what it means to be fervent. No horse that just trots around the tracks and stops to eat dandelions will ever win the triple crown. But the word here equates to that push forward towards the finish line. Nothing is going to hold me back from loving someone else. The word's also used for muscles that are being strained as an athlete when he strains his muscles to failure and he's pushing himself to another level. And so Peter here says, you need to be fervent in your love. Fervent in your love. Some translations would even say it in this sense to be stretched out in your love. Why would he say stretched out? Because remember, love covers a multitude of sins. And what does sin do? Sin stretches our limits. Maybe our kids uh, are pursuing their own desires in our own house and they're not listening. So what do I say to Christy? I say, they're stretching me to my limit. 
right? They're pushing me over the edge. And Peter would ask, wait, Matt, you have a limit? And what's the basis of that limit? Who determined that limit? Tell me who you got that limit from. You know, maybe I've even given my kids a a three-strike rule, right? Next one, and you're out. But who determined that I could say when enough is enough? It surely wasn't Jesus Christ, right? Because the parable of the king's mercy, he says, forgive how many times? 70 times seven. Keep it going. So to be fervent in the love, Peter's saying, it's enduring, it's constant, it's persistent. And now I said it's, it's the strategic response to Peter's instruction. And so why is, it, why is putting on love strategic? Remember what's happening in the churches of Asia Minor, where Peter is writing this letter. And, and just side note, First Peter is going to be our next book study. So we're going to go into all the, the background of the book. But, but this church in Asia Minor, they're being persecuted and, um, and that persecution is obviously, it's coming from the outside. It's external persecution on the church. And Peter's telling them why they need to set an example, even for those who are persecuting them. It's, why, it's so that God might show mercy towards outsiders, right? And some of them even coming to faith by the witness of the church. And so what can happen when there's pressures from the outside? Let me illustrate it this way. Think of a married couple, right? Their economy, it takes a downturn. Husband gets fired from his job. And what can happen in that marriage itself? Strain? Stress? Difficulty? Of course, right? You see heads, heads nodding. Yeah, but these forces on the marriage are coming from the outside. It's not a friction that starts within, but with the two of them internally, but it's forces from the outside, And that puts constant strain on the marriage, unless there's love, right? Love is what strengthens it from the inside out. And so the churches here in Asia Minor, they're under severe persecution. Now imagine adding to the forces that are coming against the church from externally, then you add internal friction. What do you think is going to happen to that church? There's going to be trouble, Christ, in his ministry, he even says, no kingdom divided against itself can, it can stand. It can't last. It's going to fall. You have a kingdom divided against itself, it will fall. And even though our church, Church of the Canons, is not faced with persecution like the churches of Asia Minor at the time, there's still various schemes of the devil that we have to uh, face every single day. And here in the United States, there's an ever-increasing hostility towards our belief system. That is what we believe and what we hold to be true. And if we are battling the world, that's going to be expected, right? But if we begin to battle one another within the church, then we lose. We lose. That's why you heard, you've heard the phrase, right? Circle the wagons. Circle the wagons. What does it mean to circle the wagons? Right? There's a force coming from the outside and so we need to come together so that we can be stronger against the enemy right but if the enemy is fighting against us and then we're fighting against one another it's not going to end well right the sports analogy of talk of trash talk right if you can get inside the other person's head you've already won the fight before the game's even begun you can, you can stir within the other team confusion or distrust just to try to get that upper hand in the game. And so what does the enemy want? He wants us to be at odds with one another, to not love one another. When there's infighting, the enemy says, I've got them now. I've got them right where I want them. Think of that church disputing over what type of juice is in the communion cup. Disunity, Right? Think of that church fighting about what type of music to play. There's grievances against one another. Think of that church who argues about the color of the carpet, right? There's friction in that church. Think of the church that's not willing to love one another. There's competition. And so when there's disunity within the church, the church is not effective and the the enemy is winning. So we've seen we need to walk in love because it's consistent with God's character. 
It's consistent with Christ's teachings and Paul's exhortations and Peter's instructions. Turn back with me to Colossians uh, chapter 3. And I wanted you to see, uh, before we go into the second point, to look at the stark contrast between what's communicated in verse 14 and then the vices of verses 5 through 9. See, this is the reason why love is needed. Because love must be the bonding agent, that, uh, uh, the bonding agent of the virtues of verses 12 and 13. Because if not, if, the, if love is not connected to the virtues, then the vices that we're supposed to be putting to death in verse 5 will reign supreme. Look at, look at Colossians 3 verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to what? Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Wow. It's a big list. Continue in verse 8. What are we supposed to put away? We're supposed to put away anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech. How many churches are torn apart because of slander and abusive speech and gossip and anger and greed? And especially greed because someone just wants to be that person in power. Someone just wants to be recognized. They don't want to humble themselves and just be a servant amongst other people. And so these churches are torn apart. It grieves me to even say that I've seen this firsthand. And I want to make it clear, I'm not talking about this church, but another church where I've seen a master seminary graduate had gone out with other trained men. And there's a point that there was so much friction, so much disunity, so much disagreement that they couldn't work together anymore. Why? What caused it? And what can we learn from that? Well, first off, your educational pedigree doesn't immunize yourself against pride. So don't think for a moment that, well, those sorts of things, those sorts of church splits just happens on the outside. It doesn't happen to biblically grounded churches like ours. It doesn't just happen in those wild, charismatic churches. No, the evangelical church is not free from this type of behavior. Gossip can happen here among us. Greed can happen here among us. Slander can help happen here among us. Talking about people and not talking to people can happen here among us. I'm not aware of it happening here at Church of the Canyons, but it could, right? It could happen. And if it is happening and I don't know about it, knock it off. <laughs> so that's why this reminder is here. Above all, above everything, put on love. So you can't be slanderous and you can't be angry and you can't hold malice in your heart and have abusive speech if you love. It's not possible. So number two, the second truth that we need to understand is that we are to walk in the secure power of love. Walk in the secure power of love. Second part of verse 14 is the perfect bond of unity. So we need to understand what that is. If you have the New American Standard, it says, above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Like I said earlier, I looked at a bunch of different translations uh, this week. And if you happen to have a Jerusalem Bible translation, I don't think many of you do, you'd see something really interesting. It goes even further. And the translators, they, they took it upon themselves to interpret this verse by the way they translated it. That translation says, above all these clothes, to keep them together and to complete them, put on love. And that's strange, right? Where do you get clothes from? Why would the translators use that word clothes? Because earlier in chapter 3, Paul was saying that we need to put on the new self. And in verse 10 and 12, that we need to, again, put on that new self. And the word was literally used when people got dressed and undressed. They took off their clothes. They put on, take off the old self, put on the new self. Just like you would take on and off a piece of clothing. So you're to put on the virtue of compassion and kindness and gentleness and humility and patience and forbearance. 
and you're supposed to put it on just like you put on a piece of clothing. And again, the translators made that uh, interpretation for us as they translated it, and I happen to agree with them. They got it right. Really? Put on clothes? They got it right? Well, we have to, to, to figure out why I got there. We have to do a little bit of grammar in the text, right? We have to figure out what's the object of the perfect bond of unity. What is he talking about? The, the object is implied in verse 14, but we have to determine what that implied object is of that perfection, right? What is it? Is it the perfection? Is he talking about believers? That the believers will be, will be perfected? Or is he talking about these virtues that are going to be perfected? And what are the virtues? Again, we've, we've looked at them. Verse 12, it's uh, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. And I believe what he's saying is that if these virtues are going to be perfected when we, above all, above everything else, put on love. And so the Jerusalem Bible says, over all these clothes, to keep them together, put, and to complete them, put on love. And then if we put on love, then these other virtues, the body of Christ cannot help but to be matured, to be perfected. I mean, imagine, just imagine if the church could consistently, and as Peter says, fervently or earnestly show compassion all the time, right? What would happen if we showed kindness and gentleness and meekness and bearing with one another and forgiving one another? What could possibly happen in the church? Right? There, will, there will always be forces. There will always be external forces coming upon the church. Right? Because the devil will not relent. But it won't be because there are internal conflicts that there's chaos and disunity. If we're obedient to scripture. So I believe that what he's saying is that the objects of, of the perfection are the virtues that we put on. And that we put on love on top of everything else. And that's the thing that pulls everything together. You might even think of it this way. If someone invited me to a black tie event, you know, I'd start my preparation. Right? I'd put on my dress socks and then my shirt and then my tux pants and then my, my belt or cufflinks and um, shoes and then I'd put on my tie. What am I missing? Uh, the coat, right? The tuxedo coat. Right? It wraps it everything up and it makes it all fit. And so similarly, love completes the outfit. Love that covers all these other virtues will make the virtues complete or be perfected. Love is it. Love is what binds and holds everything together. And so as you button up the tuxedo coat with the tails, it makes sure that love... Make sure that compassion stays where it is. That gentleness stays in place. That's the image that we have here. Puritan uh, Richard Baxter, uh, preacher and author, he wrote a book named Christian Unity. And he explores this idea of unity. And he gives some examples of why it's hard for the church to be unified. Or uh, yeah, difficulties in realizing unity within the church. Right? He gives, he gives, I like a list of 23 reasons, but some Christians, they're not the same age, right? Meaning some are babes, spiritual babes. Some are novices, some are weak, some are old. Other Christians, they might not have the same degree of strength, right? Some are still drinking milk, whilst others are eating meat and potatoes. Some are strong to resist temptation, while some are weak in their faith. Others are gifted differently, some excel in knowledge or discernment. Some others in giving. Some Christians aren't the same spiritual health. Some wander in their devotion. Some are rock solid. Some have their doubts. Some Christians won't have the same reward. Christ uses some Christians differently than others. And their, their rewards will be based on how God used them. And reading this, that book this week, really, it was unusual for me to think about how Christ equips his church differently, but it's true nonetheless. Every Christian is different in one sense, but more than the differences are the unifiers that reign supreme. We have one God, 
We have one head. We have one redeemer. We have one mediator. We have one savior. We have one Jesus. We have one family. We have one father. We have one end goal. We have one faith. We have one law to live by. We have one devotion. We have one baptism. We partake of one holy food. We are of one body. And we have one crown of glory which we await. And every member of the church has one habitual love to give each other. So we must understand the relationship of Colossians chapter 3 between love and these virtues that Paul talks about. So let's take each one in turn. Look at verse 12. As I've stated a number of times already, he's saying here, love is above all these virtues. And if we put on love, then it brings them together and it matures the church. So compassion and love. How do those work together? They work together because love looks to the needs of the other person and it acts appropriately. Remember, compassion means to look at someone with pity, but it's not a passive looking. It's also an action, right? We see and then we do. That's compassion. Christ felt compassion, right? He sees uh, uh, people in need and he's moved with compassion in his heart, but he doesn't just look at them. He acts. He meets the needs. And so with love and compassion combined, it says, I see your need, now let me respond. What about kindness and love? Kindness and love. Love love works with kindness because love is going to, to make practical decisions which are useful for those in need, right? Kindness, you can break it down. Kindness is essentially that practical expression of love. If you love someone, then you'll be kind. What about humility and love? Love completes humility because love will recognize the call to prefer others as more important than your own. What did Paul say in Philippians chapter 2? That you prefer one another. That you defer to one another. And we know that in any relationship, right, if you don't defer to someone else or prefer that other person, then there's going to be some tension that might be created, right? See, we have to learn this. This isn't uh, human nature to defer ourselves. We are selfish by nature. But we have to learn that. We can do it through Christ's power, right? And that's why Paul gives Christ as the example, right? He denied himself, right? And he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What about gentleness and love? Gentleness and love. Love working with gentleness works because love avoids harshness. It avoids harshness, not only in action, but in tone, so oftentimes, if you manifest love through gentleness, right? After all, it, what, what does the scripture say? A gentle word turns away wrath, right? How many of you ever seen it happen, happens where a gentle word just turns away wrath? Have you ever seen it go the other way? Where you go blow for blow and tone for tone? Does that lead to any, any sort of cool down? No. Like, well, that really worked out. You insulted me and I have to insult you back? No. It's never happened. That we raise your voice and then they see your point. Oh yeah, that's, that's what I should have done. See, this is where love and gentleness meet one another. And then you can avoid disunity. What about patience and love? Patience and love. Patience works with love because it's a desire to see the best in the other person. Patience is an expression of love because it will control ungodly responses. And it places the Lord in the position to act according to his timing and his plan. See, loving patience understands the sovereignty of God. Dwayne reminded us of that this morning. Loving patience understands the sovereignty of God. Remember the word patient. If you, if you ever studied that word, it's translated. It just means long-suffering. Long-suffering. So God, you know, I have to allow your timing to take place. That's what patience says. The tendency for us is to not be patient, right? Where we want to take uh, everything and put it even into our own hands. But love embraces the sovereignty of God and expresses it through patience. The next virtue in Colossians 3, what about forgiveness and love? 
forgiveness and love. Love forgives because these two virtues are absolutely bound to one another in the course of salvation, right? We considered earlier the attribute of love and the love that God has and the forgiveness of God and how they are inseparable. And so forgiveness is the greatest gift that we can give any person. And God's forgiveness of us is the greatest gift available. And if the scripture is saying that God is love, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his son, then love is what I have to give. So love is bound to forgiveness. And we're called to manifest this love in the body of Christ so that we can be an example to the world that's watching, and that we can live in harmony with one another. So a final thought for you uh, this morning. We must remember the words of Christ when he said that our love would be a witness to the watching world since people are looking. What a horrible situation it is when there's church disunity and confrontation and and for that to go public, to make it in the papers, to make it on the news, a stain on the witness of the church. When you have church members suing one another, launching investigations, all to find out that they were offended at the, uh, whatever, I don't know. They're just offended. And the irony of it all is if they had shown love, if they had shown meekness, if they had shown compassion and kindness and long-suffering, if there had been forgiveness within the church and that it's all wrapped up in that love for one another, then the, the situation could have been avoided. And so, if we are to show love to one another, we certainly can, ta- can maintain and develop even more the unity that Church of the Canyons has. Let's pray. God, you are good. God, you, you've left us with your word. Shows us the way to live. If we would humble our hearts and be obedient to your scripture, you could work through us. That's our prayer. Forgive us where we fall short in any one of those. If we're still holding on to sins of our past life, of our old self, I pray that we'd repent now. God, forgive us of that. So we might put on the new self, walking with with compassion, kindness, and humility, and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. And forgiving one another, just as Christ has forgiven us. That is our prayer.